This is The Legends and Icons of Travel, an audiobook podcast by Gary Bembridge. The stories behind the most famous legends and icons of travel across the years, from the book of the same name being written by Gary Bembridge. In this chapter, the story of the Channel Tunnel. It is somewhat startling to realise that the busy and popular 31-mile-long undersea tunnel that connects the United Kingdom to France would probably never have been built if realistic assumptions had been made about the volume of traffic that would finally use the tunnel. So at the same time that the American Society of Civil Engineers is hailing the tunnel as one of the wonders of the modern world, it's also been decried as a failed and fatally flawed business model by financial commentators. Many of the latter concerned that without dramatic restructuring, the company that built and owns the tunnel, Eurotunnel, will implode under the weight of the six billion pounds of debt. This debt attracts over three hundred million pounds a year in interest alone. The story of how the Channel Tunnel came to be built and how it finds itself in this unusual situation is a fascinating one. It's a story that shows a history full of contradictions and of conflicting interests. To finally get the tunnel built required incredible persistence and determination and a vision and inventiveness to solve the huge logistical and geological barriers. However, it was actually the need to overcome stubborn political and military suspicions that had proven to be the largest and most daunting hurdle the builders had to finally defeat. Irrespective of the view that observers and commentators may have on the financial burdens facing the Channel Tunnel, or even of the desirability of finally linking the British island to the mainland of Europe, there is no disagreement about the quite brilliant nature of the technology and the scale of the engineering achievement that created the tunnel. However, this appreciation tends to be lost amidst the noise created by the rumbling money debates and constantly revolving management at the head of the Euro Tunnel Company. And yet, mention the Panama Canal, the Empire State Building, or the Golden Gate Bridge, which are a few of the other major projects identified as modern-day wonders, you will feel a real sense of admiration and even pride in man's achievement. Perhaps the fact that the real magic of the Channel Tunnel is out of sight contributes to this less appreciative response. The tunnel is buried 50 metres under the choppy and often hostile Channel Sea. There is nothing other than some large, sprawling, but largely unremarkable railway sidings on either side that signpost it. There is no glorious engineering masterpiece to look at and marvel at. Other than the 30 members of the public who found themselves deep within the tunnel after a fire erupted on a truck being carried through it in 1996, only the designers and builders have experienced close-up and first-hand the hardy design the intricate mechanisms and the amazing safety features. These 30 finding that it was indeed quite a feat of modern engineering worthy of respect. Before the Ice Age, the United Kingdom and France were physically connected as one landmass. During the Ice Age, which wiped out the dinosaurs, the massive pressure of ice placed a huge and unrelenting weight on this landmass. Within the rock that formed the landmass, there were faults that could not withstand the weight and finally gave way and subsided. This created a large valley between the United Kingdom and the European mainland to its east. This began to fill up with water as the ice melted. 
This channel eventually became a tempestuous sea as the Atlantic and the North Seas collide, creating choppy waters, often shrouded in dangerous mists and fogs. And even though at its closest point the channel is only 22 miles wide, the journey by sea has always been unpleasant, unpredictable, and even feared by less sea-hardy travellers. In the 18th century, when the first serious discussions turned to seeking alternative ways to cross the channel than by boat, it could take up to six hours to cross the 22 miles of sea. Every one of those six hours feeling especially painfully long due to the seasickness it generated for many travellers. This was the motivation that inspired many of the early ideas for finding an alternative way to cross the channel something that gained even greater momentum and significance when Queen Victoria herself reputedly complained of her seasickness and how much it would please her if someone could find a less nauseating way of crossing. Whether it was really the influence of the Queen or not, there is no doubting that the Victorian era did make a significant contribution to the final channel-tunnel solution. Prior to this, there had been other ideas and visions on crossing the channel other than by sea. Many of the options were more like wishful thinking and aspirations and realistic and viable plans. The ever-expansionist Napoleon, who had shown himself inspired by an originator of many architectural and innovative design initiatives, was intrigued by new ways to cross the channel. During his reign in 1802, his trusted engineer Albert Mathieu Favier proposed a tunnel consisting of a wooden tunnel that lay on the seabed with chimney-style ventilation and air vents at regular intervals, a dramatic drawing that showed an invading French army stomping resolutely through this tunnel towards England created alarm amongst the British military establishment and public. Even though his proposal was not very practical, the image successfully doused any real passion for pursuing a permanent connection for almost 80 years. It was this stance in our technology that is the main reason that no tunnel existed prior to the current one. The British military over the years frustrated or even vetoed all plans and developments right through until the mid-1950s. It wasn't until after they finally informally withdrew any objections that major progress was made, although other factors still held back progress until 1986. A tunnel connecting the United Kingdom and France has actually been started three times in 1881, in 1974, and 1986. The first attempt in 1881 was largely possible due to the efforts of an engineer called Tom du Gamond, who had almost religious fervour for achieving his dream. He spent over 30 years investigating, testing feasibility, and generating eight major designs. In many ways he can and should be seen as the grandfather of the tunnel that exists today. It was he that laid down much of the key approaches behind the final tunnel that has been built. Dugamond believed that a tunnel was definitely a possibility. He realised that under the channel lay an almost perfect geological condition for a solid tunnel. His understanding of the history of the British Isles and France led him to believe that underneath the channel was a major band of ideal boring material, a thick stream of chalk marl. The chalk was formed through marine deposits of small fossils that had been deposited during the prehistoric Cretaceous Age when dinosaurs still roamed the earth. Chalk is ideal boring material as although it is relatively soft to dig through it is strong enough to support itself. This means that tunnels will not collapse on themselves as they're being built. 
Using his own funds and at great personal risk, this evangelist himself made risky dives to the Channel base to test his theories. Finally, in 1869, the British and French governments approved a joint proposal by Dugamond and a previous rival, W. Lowe. However, it took a further ten years of discussions and delays before any significant progress was made. It was not until new technology made the dream seem a much more achievable and realistic project. The Beaumont Tunnel boring machine using compressed air was patented in the 1870s, and it felt to many that perhaps this same technology could not only be used to drive the vision of a tunnel deep beneath the sea, but could also be turned to drive locomotives through it, this being a new and exciting option to the tunnel proponents, as it could obliterate the obstacles they were still wrestling with and how to deal with the fumes and smoke that thundered out of the steam locomotives that were the only viable way of pulling the heavy cargo and people laid into trains. So finally, amidst great excitement, the tunnel began being dug in 1881, the newly invented compressed air boring machines performing impressively and the chalk proving to be even more accommodating and cooperative to tunnelling than they had imagined. They found that not only did they make good progress, but also they had to use pumps every two weeks to remove the build-up of water. There were two seven-foot diameter tunnels being worked on in parallel. The one on the British side was between Dover and Folkestone at Shakespeare Cliffs, and the other on the French side was near Calais at Sangat. The enthusiastic tunnel builders were aggressively churning through the chalk for a year, creating tunnels close to a mile long on both sides before panic struck. However, the, the panic was not geological or structural, but political and military. After a visit by a group of influential VIPs, the British military woke up to the small but growing tunnel and called an abrupt halt to any further work, shutting down all plans for the tunnel in 1882. The tunnel builders were devastated and angry, and the French government exasperated and insulted. The British military did concede in the aftermath of the First World War from 1914 to 1918 that this terrible war noted for the horrific deaths of so many men in terrifying trench war that a tunnel would likely have reduced this war by at least two years. A tunnel, they agreed, would have enabled them to more easily and quickly deploy troops to the battlefields in France. This would have stopped the German progress earlier and them from gaining many of the superior trench and tactical positions. In 1919, a timid attempt was made based on the perceived softening of attitudes to get an interest in a tunnel. Some test drilling began and the tunnel progressed to 490 feet, but again, the intransigence of the resistance soon closed that down. After the Second World War from 1939 to 1945, the military again acknowledged that a tunnel may have significantly sped up and reduced the redeployment of men and equipment back to Britain. Finally, in 1955, a decade after the end of that war, the British military acknowledged that the changed nature of warfare meant that aircraft and longer-range weaponry provided the real threat, not men marauding through a tunnel. Based on this, they formally dropped any objections to the tunnel. In the mid-1950s, post-war Britain and France, there was excitement at this announcement. It seemed that with the support of both governments, that something would really happen. And a tunnel connecting these two nations, with their long history of wars, squabbling and suspicion, was within sight. The project struck a chord in the forward-thinking, energised population looking to move on from the terrors of the war. But it was not to be. The scheme did, though, establish finally that the most sensible and viable route was most definitely a railway-based tunnel, but also that the optimal configuration was not one tunnel, but three tunnels, 
Two main tunnels would be needed to carry the trains loaded separately with cargo or passengers in either direction to allow the more generous timetable of trains that would be needed to meet the likely traffic demands. The third tunnel would rest between the two main tunnels, acting as a service tunnel to provide an escape route in the event of disaster, and act as a conduit for ventilation and other essential support infrastructure. In reality, its role was also to act as a reassurance to nervous politicians and potential travellers. The project lumbered along at a painfully slow pace from 1956, when the Channel Study Group was formally formed, until 1975, when the British government finally cancelled it. The 20 years was full of study after study reports and endless attempts to get the necessary agreements and laws through an ever-changing British government, increasingly distracted by the volatile economics caused by the fuel crisis in the 1970s. Harold Wilson's Labour government pulled the project as part of the measures to dramatically rein back spending as the economic crisis spiralled out of control. Although many historians believe it was a general lack of political will and enthusiasm to pursue a closer European agenda that was the key driver, especially when remember that this was taking place at the same time that the two countries were tetchily cooperating on the development of Concord and the role of Britain in the European Union was a source of major political debate and tension. At the time of the cancellation, other than the fury and animosity caused in France, the project had built 250 metres of tunnels on either side of the channel, which included some massive access shafts. These lay abandoned and ignored for over a decade, but proved extremely helpful in the final channel tunnel scheme as they acted as the method for dropping the immense tunnel boring machines underground and acted as part of the controlled nerve centres for the final project. Margaret Thatcher is not remembered as an assertive champion of close European relationships and ties being a constant source of frustration to her prime ministerial and presidential colleagues across Europe during her premiership from 79 to 1990. However, it was Mrs Thatcher that proved to be the catalyst behind the current Channel Tunnel. But consistent with her political and economic philosophy, the tunnel she envisaged, while designed to be a glorious celebration of Anglo-French engineering, it was to be built and funded entirely by private enterprise and money. The only real contribution the state making was upgrading of the rail networks on either side of the tunnel, something that the British proved slower and less enthusiastic at doing once the tunnel was being built. President Mitterrand and Mrs Thatcher signed the Fixed Link Treaty on the 29th of July 1987, which allowed the tunnel to be built. The construction of a rail-based tunnel having been chosen over other schemes like the Europont, a bridge with 5,000 metres span suspended by cables, Euro route, a drive-through bridge and tunnel combination with artificial islands, and the Channel Expressway, a road and rail tunnel. The tender to build the tunnel was awarded to an Anglo-French consortium called Transmarch Link, TML. The British consortium had been called Translink, consisted of construction firms Tarmac, Wimpy, Costian, Balfour Beatian, Taylor, Woodrow. The French consortium called Transmarche consisted of Bourget's, Dumais, Spie, Batons, SAE and SGE. They soon formed a company together with their banks called Eurotunnel and floated on the stock exchange in October 1987. This enthusiastic consortium believed that within 10 years of the tunnel opening it would carry 16 million paying passengers and 7 tonnes of freight. They also estimated the tunnel and supporting networks at either end would cost £2 billion. But while they proved extremely efficient and pinpoint accurate at building the tunnel, pounding some 1,000 metres a week through the chalk under the sea to meet midway almost to the inch, they proved disastrously poor at estimating traffic and costs. Traffic, after 10 years of opening, gave them around 40% share of cross-channel traffic, which is an impressive 4 million passengers and 2 tonnes of freight, but this is less than half of their estimates. 
Even more seriously, though, was that the building costs spiralled to double their forecasts. The combination of these two factors played havoc with Eurotunnel. Their share price, which is quoted on the UK, French and Belgian stock exchange, spiralled from an optimistic £3.26 in 1988 down to a paltry 15 pence by April 2004, driven down by the constant net losses of up to £1 billion a year. The company has only stayed afloat through injections of money from shareholders or by convincing the banks to swap their debt for shares. This notwithstanding, the tunnel itself is incredible and the feat of building is quite remarkable. The work began on the 1st of December 1987 on both sides of the channel and involved 13,000 men. Significantly and a reflection of the nature of Anglo-French attitudes and relationships, different boring machines were used by the UK contractors who used open-face machines while their French partners used earth pressure balance machines. While overall both sides had similar geology to bore through, the French would initially face less favourable conditions until they were under the sea. British engineers argue their approach proved more effective as they managed to pound their way faster than the French and achieve the records for the furthest in a day, 75.5 metres versus 56, the most a week, 428 metres versus 292.6, and the furthest month, 1,719.1 metres versus 1,105. The tunnel itself took three years to build, and including all supporting infrastructure, it took seven years. The service tunnel, which sits between the two main tunnels, led the way so the tunnels could deploy sensitive equipment to check for any possible flaws and anomalies in the path of the much larger main tunnels, such as buried cavities that could be filled with mud and sand and cause the tunnel to collapse. The service tunnels met among much excitement and jubilation on the 1st of December 1990. This was followed five months later by the northernmost tunnel on the 22nd of May 1990 and the final tunnel another month later on the 28th of June 1991. The massive boring machines were as long as two football pitches at 200 metres long and were thundering and powerful pieces of equipment. As they bore through, massive concrete linings one and a half metres long were formed and sealed to create the tunnel. The main tunnels themselves are 30 metres apart, 7.6 metres wide on the inside and 8.2 metres on the outside due to the inner linings. The service tunnel is 5 metres wide. The boring machines, 6 on the British side and 5 on the French side, actually built a total of 12 tunnels as they had to bore both forwards to create the 24-mile-long tunnel under the sea, but also seven miles backwards inland to create the connections to the rail terminals that were to be built. They also created two massive caverns deep under the sea to allow trains to change tunnels if they need to, called the English and French crossovers. Three years after the first tunnel met 50 metres under the sea, the UK's Queen Elizabeth and President Mitterrand of France officially opened the tunnel on the 6th of May 1994, the British Prime Minister being John Major, who'd replaced Mrs Thatcher when the Conservative Party voted her out as their leader. The whole system opened to the public in December of that year. The Channel Tunnel is described by the American Society of Civil Engineers as a living machine. This is because of the intricate and intelligent mechanisms that make the whole complex structure work a system that includes two power stations at each terminal to provide electricity for the trains, fibre-optic cables for data and communications, ventilation systems, firefighting auto-extinguishers, tunnel cooling system, and pumping stations to keep the tunnel free of water. The whole system faced a major and dramatic challenge on the 18th of November 1996 when a fire began on a cargo truck being carried on the shuttle as it thundered through the tunnel. The fire started to spread rapidly and safety mechanisms forced the train to stop. As the fire raged and grew viciously hot, so hot it melted the train wheels to the tracks and hit 1,000 degrees Celsius, 
The 30 passengers were able to make their way to one of the safety doors and tunnels located every 375 metres that took them to the service tunnel where they could be picked up and whisked to safety. The fire was eventually so hot, some of the concrete lining started to turn to ash. But the tunnel withstood the challenge on it, proving in this potentially catastrophic incident the insightful and toughness of the engineering expertise crafted into the tunnel. During the restoration work, the Channel Tunnel was still able to operate at a reduced level, but soon was able to handle the between 400 and 600 trains a day that had been intended for. Eurostar operates the sleek passenger trains, which are wide and comfortable, with three classes to cater for the broadest range of passenger needs. The distinctive yellow and grey trains are based on the French TGV trains and operated by a consortium of British, French and Belgian railways. Hugely popular and efficient, they soon revolutionised travel between the UK and France, whisking passengers from the centre of London to either central Paris or Brussels in around three hours. The companies see themselves as competing increasingly with the traditional airlines and the mushrooming low-cost carriers, touting their service with an advertising slogan, Fly Eurostar, which makes it clear who their competition is. The car and freight truck business is owned and operated by the tunnel operators themselves under the name of Shuttle. Whilst they hold close to half the cross-channel freight, the business quickly flattened out through vicious and aggressive pricing from the ferry operators who consolidated to be more able to take the common threat of the tunnel. If more accurate assessments had been made of the potential for passenger and freight travel and the real cost considered, it is likely that no private consortium would ever have come forward and built the channel tunnel. The company Eurotunnel has £6 billion of debt. This debt figure can probably never be repaid even if they capture a massive share of the traffic crossing the channel. And yet, they've created a masterpiece. Eurotunnel created what is universally admired and acknowledged as one of the wonders of the modern world for its technical brilliance and its ability to overcome all the natural and logistical obstacles it faced. It is therefore tragic that such a wonder, considered as significant to our modern world as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon or the Pyramids of Egypt were to the Old World, to get more publicity and coverage for its finances than its technical brilliance. You've been listening to The Legends and Icons of Travel, the stories behind the most famous legends and icons of travel across the years, from the book of the same name, being written by Gary Bembridge. If you have any comments, please email me at gary at bembridge.co.uk. To subscribe to the podcast, search on iTunes or Yahoo for Legends and Icons of Travel.